0: Welcome to 9 to 5, a podcast about jobs. I'm Emma. I'm Allie. And today we have a very special guest, our friend Katie. Say hi, Katie. Hi, Katie. Katie has a job.
1: I also have a job. I sold a t-shirt today on the internet. And get paid to make websites. Mm-hmm, and walk dogs.
2: Out of bed and I stumble in the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And and stretching, trying to come to life I Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the street the traffic starts jumping And folks like me on the job Nine to five working.
0: Jeb Bush and how he's kind of the worst. And then we're going to interview Katie about her job and how she's kind of the best. So, Allie, do you want to lead us off with Jeb?
1: Yes. So, this week Jeb Bush was quoted in saying that the only way we're going to get out of this, this being the current economic state, uh, is to be a lot more productive. And he said, quote, people need to work longer hours and through their productivity gain more income for their families. Which just seems like an obvious setup for yourself to look out of touch.
0: Yeah, does you really not realize that he's that, like? I don't
1: know. It's just even with Donald Trump and stuff. It's like, do you not like the what he keeps saying about Hispanics?
0: Like, yeah. How do you not notice that like people are gonna be mad? I think the funniest thing for me is that he's saying you'll be more productive when you work more hours, which is kind of the opposite of what science has shown us. Yeah, that's totally true. Yeah, you'll be you'll make more money maybe, but if you're paid hourly,
1: but if you're right. not. And does he even consider the people who work paid hourly?
0: Yeah. In that statement. That's even seemed like it was targeted at people working like lower wage jobs cuz like oh, you know, people just need to work more um Which is interesting because ultimately people that work lower wage jobs tend to work more labor jobs. And to work more than 9 to 5 in a labor job is customary, but, like, way beyond that is not, like, physically feasible. Right. A lot of people do work more than, like, significantly more than 40 hours a week at two jobs already.
1: And that affects your health, which probably affects the economy more than anything.
0: Right. And, like, how are people going to pay for childcare when they're working around the clock? their families. I
1: feel like this is what the whole storyline this season was about on Daenerys and the going to the Warbushida? for Game of Thrones? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Marine.
1: You know Yeah, and Marine and how, yeah, that whole, like, the different classes against each other. Oh, they yeah. They had this great quote in that that was, like, some, it was, some, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, the way you think the way things are is right or correct or can't be changed just because they've always been that way and I mm. thought that was like I think that's very true to this if you're born extremely privileged do you think that everyone I don't know you can't see
0: yeah you think that like every, everybody could be that way if they just worked hard enough
1: yeah exactly so
0: ridiculous
1: anything else topical well I think world? we should
0: transition from Jeb Bush to Katie I think the common link there is Kate Bush. So if you want to oh. say a few words about
1: Kate <laughs> Bush. <laughs> so it's too random, but I'm trying to make the Kate Bush revival happen, kind of. Yeah. Through my t-shirt company, I've been making a lot of Kate Bush t-shirts just to, like, feel out, like, you know, is there a market? Is anyone looking for that? I feel
0: like, I feel like Kate Bush, quote, wearers would definitely prefer t-shirts over tank tops.
1: You think so? I think you so. You think they're a reserve of people? I don't know, I made a crop top that said just Kate Bush on it, and I was like, I wanna know the person that wears
0: that. I would definitely wanna know the person who wears that, but I don't know who would be that. Yeah, One of my roommates person. in college had a full-on like Kate Bush shrine and I only got into her like a year ago and
1: there is a documentary about her. She
0: has an interesting kind of wispy, hippy dippy thing going on. What's the what's the attraction to the vibe?
1: I typically love like Someone who, if they hadn't, if, like, luck hadn't struck them, and, like, things just worked out, they would just be, like, this zany drama teacher.
0: That's <laughs> so
1: funny. That's like,
0: so true. They're
1: so just, like, this archetype of people like that.
0: Do you think people like that, when they, when luck does strike them, just kind of assume that that was always what was going to happen because they're that fabulous?
1: Well, I think anyone successful thinks that. They're like, oh, it's meant to be. But yeah, no, I thought a lot about my, like, interest in these specific artists who are just, like... I love Florence and the Machine. I love
0: Florence and the like, Machine. Because, like, all of
1: her songs are, about death by, are metaphors for death by drowning. She's obsessed with it. And whenever you... No way. Whenever she's, like, in interviews, she's always, like, talking about how beautiful death by drowning is. I read this thing where a lot of times a child will be drowning and a parent will go in to save... The child and then because the kid is so light, the water like brings them back and they end up not dying, but the parent dies trying to save them Ooh. because they're heavier. And then she's like, "Oh, it's like the water taking its sacrifice." I'm just like,
0: "Oh, that's so no. terrifying, it's so I dark." Just,
1: I just love that someone like that could be mainstream successful. And her song just being like every movie trailer ever, and it's like about death by drowning. Wow.
0: I guess Kate Bush and Florence and the Machine are similar. That they're these very I don't know, like 19th century British, like wailing on the cliffs of Dover, kind of thing, right? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Like there's mist and there's like big fields and they're in like big long billow dresses, heavy a little, yeah. But a little bit less suppressed because it's now okay for them to live out that fantasy in like a very determined way. Yeah. Hmm. There would be witches in their time. There would be. Have been hanged. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm pretty into people who would be either 200 years ago would have been witches, current day would be drama teachers.
0: Yeah, it's pretty much the same. People have just like the 200 year transition between witches and drama teachers. Like, think about our drama teacher in high school definitely would have been a witch 200 years ago. I never got to do drama in high school. And Krista's here now. Hi, Krista.
1: Hey. Krista's eating avocado on toast. It's Everybody delicious. I got the idea to slice up the avocado like that because one day, like, late at night, I was Googling interviews with Jennifer Aniston and Bobby Brown. And she, like... <laughs> Wait, Bobby Brown, the makeup artist? Yeah, Bobby Brown, the
0: makeup artist. Okay.
1: Is, like, a correspondent for Yahoo or something, which, like, is mm. sad because no one reads that except for, like, people like me.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, Huh. And she was just talking about how, like, a great snack is, like, not chips, like, never chips. It's, like, slicing avocado really thin and, like, drinking tequila on the rack. And it's like, oh, I love this. Jennifer Aniston said that? Bobby Brown said that. And oh. Jennifer Aniston was like, yes, Bobby, let's have some <laughs> sometime. She was like,
0: but in, instead of booze, you could put smart water in a glass with ice. You, yeah. you guys noticed how the marketing has changed? No. no. It went from be like, be flawless, be healthy, smart water, to, like, Get in the cab. Get out of the cab. Get into your office. Get on your computer. Connected. Smart water. <laughs> oh. it's way more targeted towards the active, working lady. That is really interesting. Versus like mm. the like yoga mom who doesn't yeah, have a job. Exactly. <clears throat> who can afford that shit? I don't know.
1: Someone who's real
0: on the go. Probably the
3: yoga mom in Winchester. Yeah. She could probably afford La- it.
0: Lady lawyers and yoga moms. Talking about water is a great transition in addition to Kate Bush talking about Katie because Katie loves water. I love water. So Katie is one of my friends from high school. Fun fact, she hated me in middle school because I wasn't (coughs) intense enough about lacrosse. Is that true? Yeah. Messing around at practice. Anyway, Katie is a friend from my childhood and she is a force of nature and amazing and (laughs) like saves the world in, like, an actual meaningful way rather than just, like, wanting to save the world and, like, getting people's signatures on the street. To me, <laughs> Hashtag Greenpeace, hashtag. <laughs> There's just a lot of people right outside my office who do that, and I'm like,
1: uh. Yeah. They just don't know. They're just directionless.
0: <laughs> so why don't you tell us what your deal is? What's your job? What do you do? Okay. So I run a clean tech business accelerator program For early stage entrepreneurs, what's clean tech, you ask? Well, there's a lot of different types of clean tech. In fact, no one in the industry can decide what it really means. It's basically (laughs) like we consider it to be eight different technology categories. So when you think of energy generation and renewables, that's clean tech. That's like what usually everyone thinks of as like a big wind turbine or a solar panel. But... We also help entrepreneurs that have products in different areas, like water and agriculture and energy efficiency and chemicals and software products that help people save resources. So um, I work with a lot of passionate people who want to start companies and change the world. Wow. That was very official.
1: Eight categories. That's
0: a lot. Oh, yeah. So, like, what kind of stuff do you do on a day-to-day basis? What did you do today? So today I got to work... And I had a meeting with uh, the Babson Energy Club because we manage over 50 partners. So a lot of my job involves going to meetings and listening to people talk about themselves and then coming up with a plan about how we can collaborate. Um, I spend most of my time usually focusing on either fundraising because we're a nonprofit and we, ha- we need a budget to create the <laughs> program that we run for companies Um, which is mostly like we, what we spend most of our time managing like 300 mentors that we have in our network who are all experts in clean tech, who are all mostly men and have tons of opinions. (laughs) Um, then we spend a lot of time, um, as I said, working with people that have connection to startups, so partners. And then uh, I manage five people, so that takes up a lot of time, and we are running a program. So we're building, like, basically a mini MBA curriculum for startups so that they can learn the ropes and not make big mistakes that are keeping a lot of their peers out of the uh, market. Cool. So are the mentors more, um, like, business people or, like, clean tech people? Mm -hmm. Mentors are kind of the coolest thing about the entire thing because... There, some of them are business people. Some of them have been successful entrepreneurs. It wasn't fair that I said most of them are men. Um, that's true that most of them are men, mm-hmm. but a ton of them are women, and they're really high-powered, awesome. And um, a lot of them are people that have started businesses before, but they're kind of just there to make an impact. Like you know, they're either trying to give back or use the skills that they've gained to help others. And it's one of the most amazing relationships I've ever seen. It's people giving of their time for free to help people they've never met. Run a business that they might not even believe in, just because they want to help them with entrepreneurship, which I've come to believe is like one of the hardest things Sally knows um, mm-hmm. yep. to to take on as a person.
1: So, do do people apply to your company? Is there like, do you do rounds a year? Or is it continuous? Or?
0: Yeah. So the program started ten years ago at MIT, and we've been running it ever since. And it actually became national ten years ago. And um, people will apply to different regions, whatever region of the country you're in you can apply. And you can actually now apply even if you're international because we have an international program funded by the UN. And um, basically like all, all you need to get in is a solid team. So people that really want to focus on this idea and are passionate about it. Um, a product that is not fake, not just an idea. So there has to be like a proof of concept. So it can't just be like, here's my drawing of like an energy efficient thermostat. It's gotta be like real. And then some sort of market opportunity. So that's where the impact piece comes in is that we don't want to accept people that have a technology that can't actually go to market and be successful in the real world because we want it to be minimizing water, or energy, or other resources.
1: Right. So when we first started talking about starting this podcast, Emma really wanted to have an interview component because wasn't the root of it when you graduate from college, you don't understand what the potential is or what the possibilities are. Like you, yeah, you can talk about Yeah, it. just, I,
0: I think what I, my idea was that you have these general concepts of what is a job, but then there are so many jobs out there that you would never think of as like a job. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, like someone's a teacher, someone's a lawyer. Like for me, I'm a software engineer. Those are very like defined jobs, but there's a lot of work out there that like, you know, business analyst or, like, whatever, and you're like, what does that actually mean?
1: Yeah, so I wrote down what did you major in, and did you ever think you'd be in this sort of field?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, so I have to agree with both of you on that whole jobs thing, that, like, what is a job, and, like, you know, (laughs) where, what kind of job are you going to get out of college? And I remember having a hard time about that, because I studied environmental science, and um, at the end of the day, my strongest skills were not in environmental science. They were in managing people and organizing things and events and opportunities and connecting people and um, public speaking and all these different things that I didn't study in school. And I realized pretty fast that if I wasn't going to use the skills that I learned in my major that I'd have to like build other skills. And so I think like many of us who needed needed some money – cash money on the way out of school (laughs) we just kind of did whatever we could to make money and learn and I think that's like to this day the thing that I think has been most impactful in my life is just like trying to have enough humility to do a job that you might not feel like is good enough for you but advances you in your career and makes you feel you know differently about your skills and teaches you how to deal with just the ongoing struggle of growing as a professional um so coming out of school I did a ton of different things um I worked as an intern for the place that I'm a I'm the director of now Um, I was the juice girl at a cafe Um, I did freelance art Um, I worked for two different nonprofits I worked for a university um, doing administrative stuff and then building a program Um, and I would definitely wouldn't be where I am today have if I had I not done all those things not to mention going to Italy and I went to Italy to study painting. The study painting, which was such a like cool, awesome thing. But yeah, I think like one thing that's been really interesting for me is um, that being a woman in a job that demands authority is really hard. And like just to give just to give you kind of an example, like t- so today, the news came out about the nuclear deal that was passed with Iran, which is really exciting, huge steps forward for the country, right? And in the notes in the Boston Globe about why it was passed, ultimately it was because the astrophysicists that were backing up the key negotiators, like John Kerry and the representative from Iran, were friends because of their MIT connection, because they'd both gone to MIT, and they were both guys, and they had a shared experience, and they connected, and so it was easier for them to basically get their jobs done. And that's a phenomenon I experience almost every day where people who can relate to each other and build good personal connections end up making good business connections and being successful. And as a young woman, that can be really hard because you're walking into boardrooms full of like 50 plus year old guys, or you're trying to like talk shop or talk like about your weekend with someone that has like eight kids. And it's a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge to be genuine and be yourself, but also be productive and strategic when building relationships. So, I think that's like I think it's something that I see being played out actively as young women, including myself, figure out like what is your stake in your own role? What is it that you want to convey about yourself? How can you use who you are as an advantage instead of letting it be something that marginalizes you? And how can you just connect with people so that um you get to a place with them where your intellect is what's driving the business relationship and not just who you are as a person.
1: Yeah, I, I thought about that a lot when I worked in corporate, when I worked at a law firm, because it's easy to go down the road of just being really, like, disingenuous and t- telling people what they want to hear, and then that forward, it moves you forward in certain ways, but then I don't know, I, I really started to resent it, because I knew that the people there wouldn't really respond well to who I guess who I am personally and so hmm. I guess that's something like an, an internal struggle I guess because you yeah.
0: know I don't know but what what about who you were did you feel like that would be rejected by them
1: I think well even in just like observing I'll never forget when I started tried. Okay. I'll never forget when I tried to start networking, my parents really pushed me to try to start networking, especially in the legal field before I had gotten a job in law because I wanted to, I thought I wanted to pursue a career in law. So I would uh, go and talk to friends of my dad's, basically, who are all 50-year-old men. And like, what do you, if you're like 22 and you talk to a 50-year-old man, what are you really going to talk about? And he would be like, oh, it's easy. Just like... Ask him how his golf game is. Whenever anyone references golf, like in a business scenario, I'm like, oh, that's the worst. When I actually had a job in law and I was leaving where I was in the elevator with this really, really nice man, but he was a senior partner. And there was someone who was his age, but and probably should have been promoted to partner, but never was. And I remember her just being like, Oh, like how to him, like how's your golf game? And she was like such a like cool lady. And I was like, You definitely don't give a shit. Like, how his golf game is. It's not as if he even really, like, appreciated that sentiment. It would just sort of, or, like, that question, or actually thought that she was mm. interested. It's just, like, things that you say in a formal environment. And right. that kind of, like, just goes to show how much it skews like, a white man. Like, go- what's more white man than golf? Like, yeah. literally nothing.
0: Yeah, and, like, he would never think to ask her, like, Oh, like to think of what interests she might have and then ask mm-hmm. her about it in a generic way. Definitely. It's like not necessary for men to make those connections with women, but it's necessary for women to make them with men if we wanna like be like on their radar even.
1: Yeah, that's very true actually. And it's like such a
0: like subtle advantage to be able to connect with people like that. Like having two people with the same background, whether it be education or yeah. like age Um, Automatically you feel more comfortable. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because there's, I think there's like a comfort thing, as you're saying, on both sides of it. Because ultimately, like, when you're a guy and you're used to people maybe sucking up to you, whatever, and you're also used to women interacting with you in a certain way and you're used to interacting with them in a certain way... When that dynamic is thrown off, you don't really know what to do with it. I think there's like a lot of discomfort there. It's like, oh, this person's not deferring to me. They're not just trying to make me feel good. You know, they're not like validating me. Like, this can't be a, like a normal interaction with this person. And so that's where I feel like women, including a lot of women I work with, get caught in that trap of just, Playing into stereotypes to make men feel comfortable and appreciated, yes. and then using that as a tool to get kind of like the checkbox out of them so that they can move on. And ultimately, it's like maybe that's a good question. It's like, is it wrong to take advantage of what you know to be true in terms of the dynamics in the system, um, even? Like, even if it kind of sacrifices maybe some of your own personal pride to get through some of the gridlock that can happen when men are the key decision makers and you need something from them.
1: Well, when I was working as an administrative assistant for an 80-year-old man, he, it was, like, very much him, like, wanting to play up these stereotypes. And it's just so not me to be cutesy in any way, basically. I'm sort of, like, unapologetically blunt, and it's something I've struggled with. But he would always make these jokes like, oh, like is it okay for me to go home now? Like, as it, like, you know, it would be like, you're the boss, and I was supposed to play into this dynamic uh. that was like, uh-huh, oh, like, of course, like, something like that. And I played it, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> it was horrible. like, yeah, yeah but, like, too real, though. Like, this was my life. So I just, like, dealt with it for a while and, like, played along with it to a certain extent because it was easier and it made him feel comfortable. And if I responded any differently, differently than he anticipated, that was going to create friction. And so, eventually, I just, yeah, didn't do that anymore and and started to go downhill real quick.
0: Yeah, he, like, couldn't handle it. Yeah. He, like, didn't understand the concept of someone not wanting to be treated this way that he thinks is the right way to treat people. Definitely. Exactly. It was crazy.
1: Which was just very, and everyone kept telling me to just, like, humor him. And basically, like, (laughs) keep going. And they kept being, like... he's probably going to be gone in six months. And, like, six months went by and he wasn't gone. And I was like, why isn't he dead yet? (laughs)
0: Oh, my god!
1: And then I just realized, I don't know, that I could not.
0: I heard a really interesting statistic recently, which is about – because we work with a lot of entrepreneurs that, like, have to get up and pitch to investors or different people. Um, There's, like, a lot of social dynamics that happen there. But um, we found out that, I guess, statistically – Good looking white men are number one in like being able to net cash from investors. Hmm. And then the next cat following categories are basically ugly white men and <laughs> then men of co- like hands like men of color as like a as a demographic and then um unattractive women and attractive women are at the very bottom.
1: I, I read that too actually. Yeah,
0: what do you make of that? Isn't it goes to further enforce the like attractive men are successful and like women like attractive women are dumb kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like attractive women like something's wrong with you if you're pursuing.
3: Well you adventure. can't have the best of both worlds for women at least. You can't be professionally successful and physically attractive at the think, same time. You can but be but you, you can, s- can be but, but I think are, socially there's also it's reprehensible.
1: there are also statistics that women who are thin make a lot more money than women who are overweight.
0: Yeah. That's so. true. That's not well, it's, like, I guess because traditionally women work more for their, like, we do work more for our beauty or yeah. just kind of, like, attractiveness in general. So if you see a really attractive woman, you automatically think she puts a lot of time yeah, into her Yeah, that's an interesting point. Versus if you see an attractive man, you just think, like, oh, wow, he's, like, naturally good-looking. Mm-hmm. So you're thinking, okay, this woman is very vain because she's focused on her appearance or she doesn't have better things to worry about. Do you have many female co-founders of these companies that are coming through the program? So every year, out of like about 35 companies, we'll usually have two, which is so low. Wow. Um, there just aren't that many women that are starting companies in cleantech. There are definitely a lot of other women in other industries. But since clean tech relies so heavily on STEM, like the STEM sciences, there are way fewer women in those academic disciplines. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on top of that, you know, women are just statistically shown to not be as assertive, to not be, like, as daring or put themselves out on the line or put their ego out on the line as often as men do. And to take on a venture like this is so high risk that it really takes someone who is willing to kind of, like, climb to the highest peak and shout about how wonderful they are um, and really like be ruthless so I think fewer women have had the training necessary to feel comfortable with that Mm
3: -hmm.
0: yeah that's totally true like I think across the board women that I know, even like the most confident women in my workplace like definitely have more like doubts about their position than a lot of the guys do, a lot of the guys I know are just kind of oblivious to that definitely, I think it's lucky for them for sure. Right. Well, it happens. It happens a ton in um just like the whole negotiating process. Like there are all these checkpoints that women have, whether it's an interview or opportunity, like an annual review or whatever. Where you know if you don't know any better, then you wouldn't know that you're statistically less likely to ask for more money, or you're statistically more likely to use words that sound doubtful to the person that's trying to make a decision about hiring you. So I think that there's. There's, like, a lot of noise out there about what women should be doing, but there's also a lot of, like, new kind of research that I feel like I would have wanted to see when I was graduating from college and didn't get to see. Yeah. I felt, like, so much fear and, like, nervousness about putting myself out there. Like, networking was the scariest thing in the world. It's like, Yeah. I was, like, why would anyone want to talk to me about anything? I know nothing, like... What am I doing? Yeah. And now, like, I've definitely hardened to that in a lot of ways. So what has... What about networking has changed for you? Like, what have you done differently to feel comfortable? Um... I well, feel you like
3: probably I, feel you can add value to the conversations now. Yeah,
0: I mean, exactly. I feel like I can talk about something real that I've done mm-hmm. and hold my own in a conversation with mm-hmm. someone about it versus, like... When I was starting out as a software engineer, it was like I don't actually know what um, what the thing I'm talking about really does. I'm just kind of like trying to have this conversation and like keep it afloat. It's like holding a beach ball in the air as long as you can. Um, And when I graduated college, really, I was like, oh, like all I know how to do is write papers. So (laughs) like I don't even know what these jobs that I'm applying to entail. Like I remember I applied to be an account manager at some startup. Um, in San Francisco and I was like I don't even know what that does it's like you like talk to people I don't know and now I'm like oh yeah we have account managers at my work I know exactly what that entails I could talk about it mm-hmm. but just because I didn't have any exposure to it I didn't know what the heck I was talking about if you had hard. if you had in college like a choice of any course that you could take about becoming a female professional what do you wish you could have gotten to take I think honestly what you were saying about wanting to know how to be confident and speak up for yourself would be really huge cuz definitely altered the way that i have like spoken at at work over the past year and a half just because i've gotten more comfortable with my coworkers and like you know risen in position so i'm not a, like the newest junior person but also just because i see how other people are interacting with each other like a lot of the like more senior guys on my team and i'm like okay this is how Mm-hmm. I'm gonna interact to get my point across, and I for me I don't feel like that's a, like compromising my ethics in any yeah. way because I'm like this is fine like I will be blunt with you I'm totally cool with that, um and it's broken a lot of my bad habits around apologizing or sounding like I'm questioning myself all the time. That's one really interesting thing that happened to a colleague of mine recently, and it's definitely happened to me too where. You're in a situation where someone, and this happens a lot with men, is like a, trying to assert themselves over your opinion, and they won't listen to you until you basically interject in a super blunt and what we consider rude way, mm-hmm. based on how women have been socialized. Like it feels unnatural because it feels rude, but everyone else is doing it. Mansplaining. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You'll have to say like, "Can I finish my point?" <laughs> and then they're like, uh, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I don't know. I've been on a lot of conference calls where I can't get a word in. Yeah, you try and even at like in-person meetings like you try and say something and if you don't just go for it and talk over someone else yep. like you won't be heard. And I think that's another thing I was reading about recently is that women rarely um, interrupt and it's something that we need to learn how to do. I mean like you don't want to interrupt for no reason just to like have your voice heard. <laughs> But, like, interrupting with, like, a clear, concise point is, like, a very important skill to develop. hmm I was very proud of myself in a meeting today. I did that. Two of my coworkers, well, my boss and one of my coworkers were kind of arguing about something, and I was, like, although, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I, like, interrupted because I had stuff to contribute to help them see each other's opinion.
1: How do you feel about crying at work, Katie? That's
0: a good question. Your
1: honest feelings.
0: So, I've definitely cried at work. In front of
3: people or in private? So,
0: I've cried facing my laptop sitting down <laughs> with other people in the room. And you pretend it's not happening. And you pretend it's not happening. I've cried in the bathroom at work and called you. Yeah. Um. I've cried a lot at work, but I guess that my stance on it personally is, you know, it's not that... It's important to make sure that the people that you work with know that you have a life and that it's not... You know, you're a real person, so... Someone catches you crying, you know, that's fine. The issue that I have is basically you don't want to be in a position where you're crying a lot in front of people you work with. Because I think that it can kind of interrupt, um, like, a professional dynamic that you might might try to create for yourself. Um, Having, because I've seen that happen in the workplace, like, a considerable amount. where Or right. people, people will be criers and other people will not take it the right way or it won't be the time to share something personal and it detracts from the work space. Yeah, or, like, you're, you tend to cry about certain things so then people don't bring you those problems anymore or something. Um, yeah, they, definitely. They don't talk to you directly about whatever issue is going on. Yeah. I mean, I think that ultimately... The workplace can be so challenging for young women that I would I would really deeply encourage people to think about why they're gonna cry. Mm-hmm. If if it's a choice, if you feel like it's a choice, like I can break down right now or I can't, because there are so many serious problems in the world that whatever you're in, whatever you're dealing with at work, just like we're talking about today, a lot of other women are experiencing. So they are, like, good outlets to let that stuff out and communicate without letting the act of crying either, A, put you in a worse place emotionally to deal with things, or, B, um, put you in a worse place professionally because people think that you can't handle the job you have.
3: Well, I would think that a lot of male coworkers would assume you're hyper-emotional and unable to process things logically or rationally as right. a stereotype that women... definitely. But should we normalize
0: women's emotions by normalizing crying in the workplace, right? Like, our workplace, I'm not saying, like, I want to cry all the time in the workplace and it should be totally fine because it does, like, make me feel worse when I cry sometimes. And also, like, I need to be able to process stressful situations in a more productive way. Mm -hmm. But that being said, our, like, the emotional tone of a workplace is very male in terms of like anger is okay and aggression is okay but like more like female emotions like getting upset about something or like having an automatic response of crying aren't acceptable so like why is it that like getting very heated in a discussion and getting angry is okay but getting very heated in a discussion like like naturally crying isn't okay Hmm. right
1: i think like you're totally right about the current climate like how crying is perceived and how is ultimately negative, but I think as far as being, like, if you're trying to actually be really, like, progressive and you're, like, wanting to redefine the... how we think about the workplace or how it's structured or how we're expected to act. Like, I'm all, like, I don't know. Something I think about a lot is why do you need to be, like, your best self at work? Like, why do you need to be this other best self? Like, it's just another part of your life. And, like, we've really, like... We put... The workplace on this pedestal of needing to play these roles and fit into these dynamics when really it's just like a human construct. So I'm, I don't know. I'm interested in the idea of, like, as the workplace becomes more feminine because it will have to because now we all... Everyone participates in the workplace. We're still coming down from it being a very male-dominated environment that mm-hmm. there's going to be... Or there should be a place for those sorts of emotions,
0: including yeah. crying. That's- I guess that one thing I would say about it, I agree that the double standard, dangerous of being like men can be angry and rude, but like women can't cry. I think that's screwed up, and that there should be like there shouldn't be a double standard. Should be communicated that there's like professionalism, and that everyone should be respecting each other and respecting each other's space. I guess like the two things I'd say about crying, and we might have a different opinion about it, but like on the one uh, like I think one thing is if you're crying at work you maybe shouldn't be at work yeah. like during those times many times you need a break you need some time to process you need to go for a run and I think that is just as frowned upon as crying in the workplace is like taking time for self-care and I think that's something that really needs to be harped on like if you're ready to cry at work like you might want to just think about how you can instead of putting yourself through like the blender of work take a step back so that's like one thing I right, definitely or, like, address, other issues. address other issues totally yeah. The second thing is that I think being someone that manages young women, I don't want to be seen by them as someone who is going to cry about how hard it is to be a young woman in the space. I will go out to coffee with someone and I'll cry. I will go out to like for a drink with someone and I'll cry. But I'm not going to cry while I'm at work because that in my mind sends a message to them that whatever is being dealt with can't be dealt with in a productive, level-headed fashion. And I'm, like, I'm even willing to cry at work about people being bombed in Gaza. But I'm mm-hmm. not willing to cry about getting on a phone call and having some, like, guy, like, talk talk me down because I just don't think... I don't want to give them that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's, no. something, that's something I encounter. I think that's a good point because, like, I... I think, like I said earlier recently, like, took more of a leadership role and one of the things I was thinking about was, like, okay, like, how do I have to change the way that I conduct myself now that I'm, like... In charge of people, and I was thinking about the exact same thing. Like, okay, like maybe I shouldn't cry at work. And like, I don't cry that frequently at work. But like a few weeks ago, something was just like incredibly frustrating, and I like had a mini meltdown about it. And I'm like, okay, now that won't be the way to handle that. That because I don't have anyone who can like, I can lean on as much to like assist me with this. I have to be the one to that other people can see as they, that they can lean on. Mm.
1: I don't know. I really just find it so interesting, though, that crying is so stigmatized. Yeah, it is really interesting. Or, like, means such a specific it like signifies unraveling. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel like that's necessary, or like weakness.
3: Mm -hmm. Maybe it could be supplemented with direct conversations or something like during or after your uncle. Yeah. I was going to say that,
0: that, like, I think that one of the reasons people think of crying as, like, an unproductive and hyper emotional thing is, like, Honestly, I don't know what you guys have experienced, but, like, when I'm crying, it is it is an emotional release. It might not... Be, it's not, like, an unraveling, but it's a release. Mm-hmm. And I don't find myself thinking through things logically when that's happening. It's an emotional response. And, like... The, so is anger. So is anger. So is anger. Which is why I think that, like, if you're experiencing that overwhelming feeling, you should listen to it. And it's not like you shouldn't, like, experience it. But I think that that's why it's seen as unproductive, even if it isn't. So maybe the... Solution you would suggest is not to like normalize crying at work, it's to stigmatize anger at work. So, if you were, like, or it's to just have similar like social consequences for yeah. anger, right? And... Right, well, I think it's basically, yeah, it's like show up when you're ready to talk in a calm fashion, yeah, yeah, whatever that means. If you're really angry, if you're really crying, like whatever it is, like if it's going to be unproductive for you to interact with people when you're in a given state.
3: Especially yeah. if you're in a leadership role in the future. If someone approaches you with a really angry undertone, then you can address them and say, we'll talk about this later when you're level Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and if someone's the crying, then you can say, we'll talk about it
0: later. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that was a very satisfying answer to our crying. <laughs> we like to talk about crying at work um, just because it's uh, relevant. Some people are like natural criers, and like some people cry out of totally. frustration and mm-hmm. can't help it. I don't
1: know. I, like, totally get what you're saying, and it's so logical, but for some reason I have, like, different feelings about it that I can't fully articulate. No, that's totally cool. But I wish that I could, have like, make my point well. But I, I feel think that like I can't.
0: I mean, all women are different, too.
1: Yeah, and even if you shouldn't cry at work, the whole stepping away thing is, like, an interesting idea. But then, like, what larger reverberations could that have? And then mm-hmm. what does that say about how workplaces Conduct themselves now. Right, you're not encouraged
0: to like step away from a problem and like take time for yourself at all. Right. I think that that's probably one of the toughest things. Is like if you know, if you know that you know sexism at work isn't going to change right away, or the fact that you have to work nine to five isn't going to change like right away, it can make people feel really powerless. And so, you know, you can cry, but it might not change any of that. And I think that that's a tough. That's a really tough cycle to be in. Yeah. Well, thank you, Katie and Krista, Woo. for joining us today. Yay. Thanks Come for, back for having to us. to the podcast anytime. anytime. Interview number one was a roaring success. Yay. So, Yay.
1: Very Thanks, good. thanks ladies. Yay. You're a great first subject, very articulate about Yo shit. hmm <laughs> Okay. Thanks
2: for listening. Nine to five. Bye. 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 They jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the street, the traffic starts jumping, and folks like me on the job and a fight working.